Welcome to the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast. We are the Soto Brothers. I am Samuel Soto, Doctor of Physical Therapy. And I am Joseph Soto, a physician. Together, we are board-certified medical providers who specialize in internal medicine and physical therapy. Our mission is to promote longevity, health span, and wellness in order to prevent illness and injury so we can optimize the human experience. Any information on diseases and treatments available at this channel is intended for general guidance only and must never be considered a substitute for advice provided by a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare professional with questions you may have regarding your medical condition. Many say that sleep is the cousin of death. It is this mysterious altered state of consciousness that we spend a third of our lives in and don't know much about. Why do some people dream that they are falling? Why do some unintentionally go as far as sleepwalking their way to commit a murder? Why can some people fall asleep on a subway train, but others cannot fall asleep in a dark and quiet room? In this episode, we will explain sleep and how to optimize your sleep in order to improve your health. Although many say that sleep is the cousin of death, I believe that it is the twin of health. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast. Today, we will be discussing all things sleep, including why and how we sleep, what happens when we do not sleep optimally, and scientifically proven ways to improve your sleep. So, if you or someone you know is suffering from poor sleep, this episode will definitely provide you with the guidance on how to change that. So, Sam, what is sleep? All right, Joe, that's a great question. Sleep is nearly ubiquitous throughout the animal kingdom. You know, there are many animals, if not all of them, that sleep. You know, some sleep more than others, like koala bears can sleep many, many hours a day. And others, like some humans, only sleep maybe three or four hours a day. But essentially, sleep is an altered state of consciousness that is essential for brain health, overall health and physiology of your body and basic biological functions. In diverse animal taxa, poor sleep negatively impacts development, cognitive abilities, and longevity. Sleep is essential for the brain because it allows time for the brain to repair and maintain brain cells or neurons. It also prunes connections and removes toxins. Synaptic pruning is thought to be the brain's way of removing connections in the brain that are no longer needed. What this means is that, well, we have neurons in our brain, which are the brain cells, and these neurons are connected to each other through synapses or little spaces in between these nerve cells. And within these spaces, we have neurotransmitters or these chemical signals, molecules, and that's how cells communicate with each other in our brain. So when we sleep, our brain reorganizes information and gets rid of things that we don't need. There are also four phases of sleep, which we will get into later on. But as I mentioned earlier, we spend about a third of our lives sleeping. So I think this is a very important topic to speak about. And the quality of our sleep is crucial for our health and wellness. So Dr. Joseph Soto, tell us more about sleep. Yeah, so I've always been interested in sleep. And um, as a medical provider, I have seen that if you don't get enough sleep, it really impacts your health. 
And I've seen this personally and both professionally. Uh, I've seen uh, my patients and how poorly they have done when they don't get the adequate sleep that they need. And, and so this is the reason why I've always been interested in this topic. And professionally, unfortunately, I have seen many providers and especially during residency when the effects of sleep deprivation really wreaked havoc on, on their health. So this has always been a very interesting topic and I'm very excited to do this talk today. So let's get started with sleep. So over the past several decades, we have unfortunately been getting less and less sleep as a society. Now, this has to do with increased demands at work and school, increased amounts of light pollution, artificial lighting, including blue light from devices, more and more chronic stress and higher rates of OSA, also known as obstructive sleep apnea and obesity. We know for a fact that our human ancestors slept much more than we did, and they typically rose with the sun and went to sleep when the sun went down. Midnight is typically a time when people are just going to sleep in modern times. However, midnight literally means half the night has passed. We also know that chronic lack of sleep has an enormous impact on the economy because people are generally less productive when they are not well rested. In addition, lack of sleep is a major cause of motor vehicle accidents. Drivers who get less than 6 hours of sleep or less are 33% more likely to have an accident on the road compared to those who get 7 or 8 hours of sleep. Driving while sleep deprived has the same or worse impact as driving with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.05%. Now, as you can imagine, this has a devastating impact on the economy because the more accidents that there are, the more insurance premiums, and then that leads to other issues down the line. I also thought this was an interesting statistic. The Monday following the spring time change, after losing an hour of sleep, was associated with a 24% increase in daily heart attack counts. And the Tuesday following the fall time change, which is gaining an hour of sleep, was conversely associated with a 24% reduction in heart attacks. So do I need to convince you all of any further that sleep is important? No, uh, I don't think you do. I think I think that was pretty clear. Uh, my question to you, Joe, before we continue is, you said that you've uh, seen it personally, like difficulties with sleep and things like that. So how, how have you experienced sleep difficulties and how has it affected your, your career and your life? Well, I would say that I've never really had sleep issues uh, personally. Um, I would say that I became aware of how important sleep was because it was really during residency training where, as, as many of you know, it's it's infamous for, for very long hours and residents, they typically have to do overnight rotations, which means they start at nighttime. So a typical shift would be 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So you would start work at 7 p.m. and then you would work all night and then you would stop at 7 in the morning. So... I really started to see how if when I was doing those rotations and if I didn't really sleep well, how, how my brain was affected the next day. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible. It was always impossible for me to, to adjust to those night shifts. So I, I always had to basically just not sleep for an entire night and, and mm-hmm. then readjust that circadian rhythm. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, it's not that I have personally had any issues with sleep. It's just that. When, when when you don't sleep, you really see the effects of, of how it ha- what it has on your body, your physical 
uh, health, your mental health, your emotional health. You know, I, I would notice that when I wasn't, when I was doing those rotations, I would be very, very irritable and everything would make me angry. And things that were simple that would take me two seconds to do, you know, while not sleeping well, it would, it would take me double the amount, maybe triple the amount of time. Yeah. So that was my first introduction to, to, um, to, to sleep. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it's an important topic. Um, I recently saw something in the news that showed that uh, Dr. Jing Mei, an intern in California, died by suicide. And I believe this, this month, or I think last week, is uh, you know, National Suicide Prevention Day, or I think for physicians or just in general. So, you know, it was definitely devastating to hear that. Um, and I think one of the main causes is, you know, lack of sleep. You know, people are likely to be more irritable. And as you said, um, there's a statistic actually that shows that one in five car crashes is the result of drowsy driving. So sleep is is super, very important. And um, I'm glad we're talking about that. Um, so can you please tell us more about this, the negative health outcomes that can arise because of poor sleep? Yeah. So at this point, it is well known and established that lack of sleep or poor quality sleep is associated with several negative health outcomes including increased risk for developing metabolic disease. So this is really a big one. When, when we're not sleeping well, our rates of obesity goes up tremendously, diabetes, and high blood pressure. Those three are, are the more common ones. But you're also at increased risk for developing infections, particularly upper respiratory infections like sinus infections, colds, um, inflammatory diseases go up like autoimmune disease. Mental health disorders skyrocket when we don't sleep well, including anxiety and depression. And recently, we've, we've ha- we have evidence that there, are, there is increased risk of developing dementia when we don't sleep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the typical, typical model for explaining dementia is that over time, our brains, they start developing proteins. And they start th- th- these proteins are called tau protein, and they mm-hmm. start accumulating in the brain. And in one type of dementia called Alzheimer's, there's a very particular protein that's called amyloid, amyloid plaques that starts mm-hmm. building up in the brain. And, and so the thought is that when we don't sleep well, uh, we, we, are, we, we essentially are accelerating the rate at which we, we deposit these amyloid plaques. So this is, this is very cutting edge medicine and cutting edge science. We're starting to see that not sleeping well increases your risk for developing dementia. There is even evidence to, su- to suggest that poor sleep may increase your risk of developing cancer. Mm. And again, this has, to, this has to do with, likely has to do with the metabolic aspect because when you don't sleep, you're at higher risk for the, the pre- um, diabetes, hypertension, and that increases your risk for cancer. We're not certain that there's an actual link between not sleeping and cancer. Yeah. And, in addition, lack of sleep also impacts our general mood. We all know that when we don't sleep well, we feel cranky. Um, our concentration is down. Our ability to learn uh, generally and sleep and lack of sleep generally makes every organ system less robust. We also know that sleep is vital for physical recovery. This is a big one, guys. We need sleep in order to recover. And it's especially important for muscle growth. If, if For those of you who are athletes listening to this, you need sleep in order to recover because it turns out that we primarily recover during sleep it's not during exercise Um, during exercise we're basically breaking down muscle and it's really during sleep that we're repairing that so we need that for muscle growth 
We need sleep for emotional and psychological regulation, which I'll get into a sec in a second. Sleep also promotes a robust immune system. Um, mm -hmm. Hormonal regulation in terms of insulin, growth hormone, and cortisol, which is stress hormone. And lastly, it's important for memory consolidation and problem yes. solving. Yes. So it, it, yes. if you're not sleeping well, I mean, you're going to definitely have issues down the line. And mm -hmm. it's also worth noted, noting that sleep is particularly important during childhood and adolescence. And and generally decreases in quantity and quality as we enter middle age. And we can get a little, a little more into that as well. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's stop there for a second. There's two really interesting things you mentioned. One of them is dementia and sleep. So I actually did one of my clinical rotations um, as a physical therapy student in a nursing home. And I actually presented my in-service for the, the staff there, the nurses, the caretakers, the, some doctors there and nurses. And I presented on a topic called sundowning and dementia and the neuropsychiatric symptoms that can arise in the late afternoon or early evening in patients because of not getting enough sunlight, not getting enough exercise and these sleep disruptions. So let's talk a little bit about dementia and a little bit about um, what sundowning is. So sundowning essentially is the emergence or worsening of neuropsychiatric symptoms in the late afternoon or early evening. Um, and this syndrome has been recognized, you know, a long time in the field of dementing illnesses. And it's something that can be a, a real challenge for caretakers because, you know, these patients start to get very angry and very irritable and they start to wander around and get lost around the, the facility. Sometimes people, they actually leave the facility and wander off. And you know, I've seen it myself. Uh, one time I was working with a patient around the late afternoon and uh, another patient was sundowning and she was throwing forks and knives at me in the lunchroom. This is a, mm. this is a true story. She was throwing things at me and she was angry. She was just throwing things, which was unusual for her personality, um, you know, in the earlier hours. But around this time in the late afternoon, she started to experience these neuropsychiatric symptoms because of, you know, inadequate exercise, because of inadequate sunlight exposure in the morning. So, you know, there are many factors that can be that can cause sundowning. Um, one of them is degeneration of the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is a structure in the brain that's responsible for that pathway of melatonin and uh, receptors from the retina to the pineal gland, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But also antipsychotics and antidepressants can cause this fatigue, hunger, unmet physical or psychological needs, temporal changes in body temperature. And like you mentioned, circadian modifications of, uh, you know, circadian rhythms or even blood glucose levels can cause this. But specifically, sleep disorders, sensory deprivation can cause this and ex in exposure to inadequate amount of light. So, Joe, what is your experience with sundowning and what is the relationship between not getting enough sleep and, and sundowning symptoms? Yeah, so I actually have a lot to say about this topic. And I have myself also seen sundowning in my patients, especially in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who don't know what sundowning is, it's basically a phenomenon that is common in patients who have neurodegenerative disorders, particularly dementia. So sundowning is just what it, what it sounds like. When the sun comes down, patients typically get disoriented. They become combative. 
And I remember, I do remember a particular situation in the hospital when I was a resident where I had a patient who had dementia and was admitted for a different reason. But once the sun went down, she went crazy. She, mm-hmm. she was, you know, also throwing things, yelling profanities, uh, disoriented, didn't know where she was, was trying to, was trying to scr- strangle somebody. So this is a real thing. And the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning that is because we do see a, co- a very, very common link between lack of sleep and neurodegenerative disorders. So it turns out that par- disease such as Parkinson's, dementia, yeah. and others, they actually first present with sleep disorders. So it's one of the earliest symptoms of, 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 of neurodegenerative disorders. So for example, patients who have dementia, years in advance, they start developing issues sleeping where they're not sleeping well, they're waking up constantly. And, and it's interesting because now... We're starting to understand that there could be a link between not sleeping and development of these cognitive uh, disorders. Yep. And um, just a fun fact for you guys out there, uh, Ronald Reagan, one of the U.S. presidents, he actually developed Alzheimer's disease towards the end of his life. And you know what was interesting? He only slept six hours a night his whole life and sometimes even less. Now, I know it's correlation and association. But we are starting to see that a lot of people who have a lifetime of not sleeping well, they tend to develop these issues down the line. Mm. And I, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, so what, one of the treatments for, for sundowning is, guess what? Light therapy. You know, two, just two hours a day of exposure in this randomized control trial uh, to bright light between 7 and 9 p.m. for one week showed reduction of sundowning episodes. Um, there's also treatments like melatonin, you know, there's various milligrams per day that they give them, such as three milligrams a day for three weeks, six to nine milligrams a day for four months in various randomized control trials. And it does show to suppress sundowning episodes. But instead of further medicating, you know, just simple exposure to light therapy, uh, getting enough exercise throughout the day and enough light in the morning is, is essential for preventing these, these sundowning episodes. So let's move on to talking about, uh, you mentioned childhood lack of sleep. I think this is a very important topic, you know, especially for teenagers and and kids, especially nowadays with all the cell phone use and, you know, the late nights staying up until 2, 3 a.m. and then having to wake up at 6 a.m. to go to an 8 a.m. class. I'm very passionate about ADHD. And I was recently watching a video podcast on um, a doctor, a physician, his name is Gabor Mate. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He's a physician, I think, out of uh, Hungary, Hungary um, and Canada. Yeah. He's yeah. Hungarian and Canadian. So he has a really good book that I think you guys should read. It's called Scattered Minds, A New Look at the Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder. And he explains that ADHD is not a disease. ADHD is actually a coping mechanism that children use because they were not able to, they were not, they were not loved as a child, or they were not given care. So they actually tune out the world because that's a defense mechanism. So it's something that's so overly diagnosed, and, and you know, the kids are on medication so early on without ruling out other psychological or emotional causes of this. So let's talk a little bit about childhood and lack of sleep. Like, how. 
how can we fix this problem, Joe? What do you think? Well, that, that's that's a big issue, as you know. Uh, you know, we're asking our children to to wake up earlier and earlier because of school, and I think, and on top of that, now we have the issue of social media and devices. You know, I think when we were children, we didn't really have any of these issues because it wasn't until we were in college, really, that that we started having cell phones and all these things. So, you know, it's tough for the current generation of kids who, you know, they're constantly being exposed to blue light, social media. They're being triggered all the time. And it's just it's just a huge problem. And I think in the future, as, as time goes on, I think those problems are going to start manifesting. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get into blue light later on in the podcast, but let's, let's, uh, let's transition here to talk a little bit more about the details regarding sleep. Let's get into the nitty gritty here. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. So in general, good things happen during sleep. So like I was saying, growth, muscle recovery, solidification of memories, and we're still learning about sleep and, but it is becoming clear that the brain is actually more active during sleep than during wakefulness, which I thought was very interesting. We, we tend to think that when we sleep, we're not doing anything, but it, actually it's the opposite. We're seeing that, that the brain is actually much more active when we're sleeping, specifically during the REM sleep cycle, which is the rapid eye movement. And the, this is recorded typically with electrodes, something called um, EEG, which mm -hmm. is a, a test that, that looks at your electrical activity. And, and, and so it's, it's very interesting to, to think that the brain is actually more active during during sleep. And so with that overview, let's get into the details regarding sleep. Wait, do you think that's why if you eat sugar late at night, then you're more likely to like dream? Because, you know, obviously our, our brain utilizes glucose a lot. And you just mentioned um, you just mentioned that. So do you think that's why people dream more or because if they eat, you know, too late at night? It's possible, but we're not we're not too sure. We're not, not too, too sure. sure. All right. So as far as we know, all living organisms on Earth sleep. And, 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 and you know, it's not just humans. It's, every, it's all organisms that do this. And there's actually a theory that states that all living organisms evolved into consciousness from sleep, not the other way around, which I thought was also very interesting. So you know, there's a very famous sleep researcher. His name is Dr. Matthew Walker. And he's a big proponent of this. He believes that all or living organisms on Earth evolved from the sleep state, not from the wakefulness state. And the, the reason why he thinks this is because whenever we sleep, good things happen. So we're, you know, sleeping is associated with repair, growth, and bad things happen when we're awake, like rep uh, damage, uh, oxidative stress, free radical damage, uh, inflammation. All this happens when we're awake. And we're exposed to the sun and there's predators. And, and so I thought it was very interesting hmm. to think that we, we first evolved from sleep, not the other way around. Um, some organisms sleep more than others, but it is generally the norm that organisms follow some sort of circadian rhythm. So what is the circadian rhythm? The circadian rhythm is a biological clock that all organisms have that dictates our wakefulness and our sleep. And it's, it's very complicated in terms of what regulates this. And I'll get to that in just a second. But it has to do with two main hormones. One is melatonin. The other is cortisol. And in humans, sleep is divided into two general phases. You have 
non-rapid eye movement sleep, also known as deep sleep. And then you have rapid eye movement sleep, which is also known as REM. Now, non-rapid eye movement sleep is further subdivided into four separate stages. Stages one, two, three, four. Typically, stage one is when, you know, when you're drowsy, when you're just starting to feel like you're about to go to sleep. That's typically stage one. And stage four is the deepest sleep. It's when, you know, people, you not even like uh, someone tapping you would wake you up. And typically deep stages of sleep, they typically dominate the first half of the night or around 40% of total sleep time. And it's, it's really in that phase of non-REM where most physiological repair occurs, including muscle recovery and growth. So when we, when we hit the gym and we're doing all these lifts like bench press, squats, if, it's, if we're not getting enough non-REM sleep, we're really compromising our muscle growth and recovery. Now, rapid eye movement sleep or REM occurs during the second half of the night. And this is when most dreams occur. And the REM phase is where the brain sorts out memories and emotions are processed. So this is the reason why when we wake up in the morning and we remember a dream, it's because we were just in a REM cycle. And, and that's the, and that explains why the dreams are so vivid because we were just we were just having that, that that episode. And every 90 minutes or so, the brain cycles between REM and non-REM, and they they cycle back and forth. Now, it is important to note that, like I just said, muscle recovery and growth exclusively occurs during rest and sleep, and not during a workout. So, for those of you listening who are really really big into working out. Just know that if you're not sleeping enough, you could do all the exercise you want in the world, but you're not going to recover and build muscle. So that that's something very important to, to know. Well, and, you probably yeah. will build muscle, right? But you it's not you're not gonna be healthy. You're not gonna be optimal. It's not gonna be well you, know, very you, little. you, you probably won't build as much as you can as possible. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's not like it's, of course, yeah. It's not optimal, but it's it's you're going to compromise it like crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, and it's in the deeper stages of sleep, your muscles, they see an increase in blood flow, which brings along oxygen and nutrients that help recover and repair muscles and regenerate cells. And also, when the body enters the deep sleep stage, the pituitary gland, which is a gland found in the brain, releases a hormone called growth hormone. And this is really important in terms of stimulating muscle repair and growth. Uh, growth hormone is secreted in a pulsatile fashion, which means it's it's secreted uh, a lot and then and then nothing, and that happens every two hours during deep sleep. So, as you can imagine, when the body doesn't get enough rest, the secretion of this growth hormone declines, and that can be, become harder for your body to recover from injury and illness. Now, it's not just muscle building. If you have COVID, if you have flu, if you have any illness, sleep has been shown to help recover from from any illness and they've actually studied this they've done studies where they had two groups of people one group both groups were actually getting the flu vaccine and one group received uh the normal eight hours of sleep so they slept normally but then they restrict the sleep to only four hours in the second group and they found that the group that was restricted in terms of sleep had far worse outcomes in terms of their immune response to the vaccine. So that that's that was uh, uh, that that proved that sleep is so important in terms of 
um, you know, the immune system in terms of recovery. So it, it's just so important. And also there's a hormone called prolactin, which helps her regulate inflammation. That's also released while sleeping. Um, if you don't sleep well, you're going to experience inflammation in the body. It's going to make you uh, not recover well. Um, also, testosterone also plays an important role in muscle growth and recovery. And if you don't sleep well, testosterone will plummet. So again, just another reason, just another reason to sleep more. Yeah, interesting. Um, so you 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 mentioned uh, testosterone, right? Is so is that is that another basically not, another natural way to increase testosterone? Just literally sleep more. Yeah, is yeah, that definitely. Simple? It's that simple. The more the wow. more. REM cycles and non and non REM cycles you you have, then the higher your testosterone levels. So, like, what? How many hours would you recommend for your patients in general, um, in terms of how many hours of sleep? And does it vary on whether you're an athlete, whether you're an older adult, whether you're a child? Well, I would say generally, the younger you are, the more sleep you require. So, toddlers, you know, babies, they they can sleep up to. 15, 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at, at teenagers, they're also known to sleep a lot, like 13 hours, 12 hours. But sometime around the 20s, I would say mid-20s, is when, is when adults, they start to, to not need so much sleep. And, you know, from there, I would say until the middle, middle life, which is the 40s, mid-40s, um, you typically need about seven to eight hours. Yeah. Now, it varies. I mean, there are people who can who do really well on only seven hours, and and there's people who also need nine hours. So it, it, there is a little bit of a variation in terms of how many hours you need. I would say anywhere from seven to nine. Um, there are some extreme outliers, so people who require less than six hours. Um, it's interesting because it's actually a gene that's mutated in, in those patients, and they actually just require four to five hours of sleep. Um, you know, there's a lot of high athlete performers and 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 people in in business and stuff who only sleep four to five hours. Yeah. I think most of those people are fooling themselves. I think they think they can do it, but it's it's actually that they have lost judgment because they're not sleeping and they think they're they're doing great. Yeah. But the other half actually only need four to five hours of sleep. But it's only a very 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 small percentage of the population that can pull this out away. Um, the vast majority of us, we really need seven to nine hours of sleep. And the problem is that as we get older and we approach, uh, you know, late life, elderly people, our, our sleep architecture is disrupted, is disrupted. So we sleep less. We wake up frequently. We have issues falling asleep. We have issues waking up too early. We have to use the bathroom. And that has a lot to do with melatonin. Melatonin starts to drop when we get older. Um, our hormones start to, to go out of whack. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a reality, but older people have generally have more issues sleeping. Yeah. I mean, one thing I see a lot, you know, is, uh, in my, in my, in the clinic where I work at is patients, you know, making, you know, complaining about, uh, waking up in the middle of the night throughout the night due to urinary incontinence. So that's definitely going to affect your sleep. You mentioned, can you, can you, uh, can you tell me again about the genetic, uh, mutation in sleep? Yeah, so there, there's a genetic mutation, which uh, I am not recalling at this moment, but there's a, a mutation that they have found in, in, in certain people that essentially 
allows them to only sleep four to five hours per night. Um, and they can fully function? or Yeah, they function completely normally. They, they only sleep four to five hours. I don't know if you know who Jocko Willink is, Sam. Yeah, jo- of course I know. Who so that he, is. he's yeah. actually he he's actually um, somebody who can only function who functions perfectly well on four hours of sleep. And yeah, the guy he, wakes up at like four a.m. every day. Yeah, so he, his sleep schedule is he goes to sleep at eleven p.m. and works wakes up at four a.m. and mm-hmm. he's perfectly normal, normal everything, and he's an extreme one of those extreme outliers. But that's not the norm. You know, yeah. most people require seven to nine hours. But yeah, so also also Elon Musk, you know, everyone knows who Elon Musk is. You know, he, he owns like four or five different companies. You know, this guy's changing the world. And he actually only sleeps like five hours a night as well. So I'm curious, like, is there a way to know if you have that genetic mutation that allows you to sleep less and fully function? Or is it just like trial and error? Like, you know. Sleeping eight hours a night, I don't do well with that. And then you start dropping down and you start to see you're more effective that way. So I would say I would say there probably is a way in terms of you could probably get a gene testing through 23andMe or something like that. But I would say as a rule of thumb, assume that you don't have the gene because mm-hmm. it's so rare that you probably you probably don't have it. I mean, it's a fast I'm saying like 99% of people require 79 hours of sleep. It's only the point one one percent who who require four hours or five hours yeah they're lucky they can do more their 24 hours is different than someone else's 24 hours yeah oh wow that's pretty cool so yeah let's uh let's yeah go ahead joe so i just wanted to kind of wrap up wrap up the that section by saying a couple of more things um so generally there are several mechanisms that dictate the awake and sleep state the principal drivers are melatonin, cortisol, body temperature, and light. So in the early morning, as we're preparing to wake up, cortisol levels, they start to rise sharply. And cortisol is a hormone that's secreted from the adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands are located on top of the kidneys. So as the morning approaches and we're about to wake up, cortisol is spiked, melatonin drops, and body temperature increases. So I, I find I find that interesting that body temperature is actually a signal for both going to sleep and waking up. And in the morning, the body temperature increases, and that's what wakes us up. And I'm sure you guys have noticed that when it's hot outside and humid, especially in the summer, it, it can become a little bit more difficult to fall asleep because of that high temperature, and that in turn makes it harder to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And and then the opposite happens. So these signals tell the body to wake up, and then as the day as the day progresses, melatonin gradually increases, cortisol drops, the body temperature declines, and then we go back to sleep. So that's typically what the twenty four hour cycle looks like. I did forget to mention one thing. Typically, around two to four p.m. every day, there is a little bit of a melatonin boost and a cortisol drop. And this is the reason, and you know, in terms of napping, this is this is why people nap, people nap. It's because there's just little period during the day where these things happen, and it, there, that is an opportunity to take a nap if you need it. It's typically bef- between two and four p.m. And you know, we have seen various cultures around the world adopt that and implement that into their lifestyle and culture, such mm. as Spain, Italy, the siesta culture, which we mentioned on previous episodes. Greece, Greece also. Greece. Does it. Yeah. 
because yeah. they take advantage of those hormonal changes that occur during the the middle of the day. We should do that here. We should. Yeah, definitely. How lo- how long would you recommend for like a nap? So yeah, so napping is very interesting. So from the from the research that I have seen, I be- I think that napping is really dependent on the person. So we we actually don't need to nap. Like if you sleep eight hours a night optimally without waking up and you feel well rested, there really is no need to take a nap. I think that in certain situations it can be beneficial. Uh, let's say for example you're an athlete and you're going to perform later that day. It has been shown that a quick ten to twenty minute nap will optimize and enhance your performance. But generally, napping is not really going to enhance your health in any in any way i would say that um if you need to nap or you need to recover from maybe a sleep that i would say try to try to limit your nap to no more than 20 to 30 minutes mm-hmm. because if you nap too long you're gonna have a harder time falling asleep that night and yeah you don't want to enter like you don't want to enter rem sleep you know because you mentioned yeah. the four phases of sleep just to remind everybody you know we do have four phases of sleep um, you know, most of them are going to be non-REM sleep. So stage one, two, three is non-REM sleep. Um, stage one lasts around five minutes, you know, kind of feeling drowsy. Stage two, 10 to 60 minutes. Stage three is when you start to get into that slow wave, deep delta wave sleep. And then stage four is that REM sleep. So with, with napping, I'm assuming you don't want to get into that REM sleep, right? Yeah, but what's interesting is that when you when people take naps, you can, you can actually go right into a REM cycle, and that's why mm. and that explains why you can take a nap and have a dream right away and wake up. I felt because that before, yeah, yeah, because you 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 went into a REM cycle to begin with. That we that's don't crazy. see that at nighttime. At, at nighttime, it's typically more non-REM stage one to four, and then REM. But when you nap, you can actually go right into a, a rapid eye movement cycle. So napping is napping is literally like a sleep hack. Yeah, you know, it's a hack. It's like get get it done, get what you know. It's like super effective, straight to the point. Twenty minutes, and then you feel good. Like if you nap more than twenty, for me personally, if I nap more than twenty minutes, like I actually feel like that's a sleep. That's I'm not gonna feel rejuvenated. But you know, when I was in PT school, we had very very long days, and we had a couple classmates that would nap. And, uh, you know, they were telling me about it and I was like, you know what, let me try it out. So I, I would take a 20 minute nap after class. So we'd have class from like eight o'clock in the morning to 5 PM. We'd go back to the, to the hotel and, you know, that's where we used to study after school. And I was like, you know what, let me take a 20 minute nap, see what happens. And I took that nap and I felt so cognitively awake and alert. And I was like ready to study for the whole night. Whereas if I were to, you know, take a nap for like an hour, that's just too much. So yeah, I think I think naps are great. Um, twenty minutes, you know, no more than like 25, 30 minutes, because then after that you're probably just gonna be really tired, and then you're not gonna be able to sleep at night, right? Like it's gonna alter yeah. your sleep at night. Yeah, it it basically re uh, resets your circadian rhythm. That's the that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. yeah. Oh man! All right, yeah. So that's yeah, it's good information there about napping. So siesta culture is uh, the right way to do it, guys. Take a siesta. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's let's talk a little bit about um, an interesting topic here: the evolution of dreaming. 
So I actually took a course in in college, uh, a psychology course, and one of the topics was dreaming. So why do we dream? And there are many different hypotheses regarding why we dream. One of the reasons why we dream is actually for survival. So the most common dreams and nightmares are what? Like, tell me, tell me a dream you had, Joe, because actually you mentioned recently like a dog chasing you. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, a recent dream I had was uh, there was a dog and I had a stick and I was trying to basically fight off that dog in the dream. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so Joe, if you don't mind me sharing a little story here, when we were younger, um, we I, all I remember is being outside on my porch. You know, it was nighttime, very dark. All I remember is seeing my brother sprinting down the street, running away from a pit bull. I think it was like a brown pit bull that was chasing him. Mm-hmm. And he comes back to the house and he's like, oh, my God, you guys don't know what just happened to me. Like. This dog was just chasing me. I was like running away from it. I don't know how that happened. You know, do you remember that? Yeah, of course. And it wasn't one, it was two. Two dogs chasing you. Two pit bulls. Wow. Two pit bulls. So that just goes to show, guys. The one of the hypotheses of dreaming is, you know, evolutionarily speaking, is for survival. When we dream, a lot of our dreams are reenactments of things that either happen to us or things that can happen to us that can cause harm to us. So what that means is, given that Joe had uh, a traumatic experience of being chased by a a pit bull, he's most likely dreaming that again in order to act out a scenario so that if that event were to ever happen again, he'd be more prepared to handle it and survive. So a lot of people dream about falling Right, falling from a cliff, falling from their bed, or falling from an airplane, or whatever, whatever it may be. Also, people dream that they're being chased by something. Right? Why is this person chasing me? People dream that they're in a dark alley and they're being chased by somebody. We're doing this because we we're we're creating uh, motor patterns. We're creating new experiences, new ways to to handle that potential situation. You know, like if I'm dreaming of, of being chased by a dog down a street and I'm visualizing it, all right, I'm going to jump on a car because the dog's not going to be able to get me if I jump on the car. All right, awesome. So if this were to happen, you know, two years later, boom, I have a memory. I created a memory of that event and I remember it. And now I'm able to perform it, you know, and that motor attack, I'm able to perform that in order to survive. So that, that's one of the, the, uh, the theories there on, on why we dream. And, you know, there are, there are different types of, of dreams. Some people experience something called a lucid dream. So lucid dreaming is really interesting. If you haven't heard of lucid dreams, it's basically a type of dream in which the dreamer becomes aware that they are dreaming while they're dreaming. So this is like some inception stuff. Um, and during a lucid dream, the dreamer may gain some amount of control over the dream whether it's the character, whether it's the storyline, the environment, you know, basically you're in control of your dreams. How trippy is that? It's and weird. it just goes to, sh- yeah, it goes to show like we are acting out a scenario for survival. And Joe, you mentioned earlier that, uh, what was it, Michael Walker? What was the guy's Ma- name? Matthew Walker. Matthew Walker. That's That actually is very interesting that we evolved 
from the sleep stage. And I think this is actually more evidence to suggest that, you know, sleeping is very important for evolving as humans. It's important for recovery. And you also mentioned temperature. And I want to go back to talking about temperature because, you know, when you think of cryotherapy, which is cold therapy, you know, something that we see in, in, in the world of physical therapy, you know, we put cold packs on to, to help with pain and help with swelling. And, and I think most people would say that the thermostat has to be set at a, at a level where it's kind of cool in the room. And, and I think that facilitates sleep more than higher temperatures. So, Joe, do you think there's a, a relationship between better quality of sleep and cooler temperatures? And, and how do all these things relate, like cold and sleep and recovery? Are these, are these things all related? Oh, definitely. So um, it turns out that when the, when, when the, temp- the ambient temperature is lower, we, we definitely fall asleep much easier. I mean, that, that's been shown study after study. And like I was mentioning, uh, body temperature is actually one of the more, most important triggers for wakefulness. And it's actually just as important as light. Um, so, you know, melatonin, that hormone I was mentioning, is secreted from the pineal gland. And it's secreted in, in response to light and darkness. So that's mm-hmm. a very important uh, factor in terms of wakefulness. But body temperature is also very, very important. So, and I'll get to that in a second when I mention some of the ways I, I optimize sleep is we really have to pay attention to the, to, to the body temperature and the temperature yeah. of the room that we're trying to fall asleep in. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, like sleep is important in immune function, correct? Yeah. So I think there's a link now, you know, this is, you got me thinking here because I think there's a link between cold exposure and immune system function and healing and recovery because you know there's a common there's a common modality now being used um ice baths right we've seen Wim, yeah, Wim Hof use it Wim Hof is a as a as a big advocate for cold exposure you know this is, this is a guy who dives into cold freezing temperature water and holds his breath for like i don't even know how long like probably minutes and minutes and minutes and he swears by ice baths and cold exposure in terms of immune system function so i think that's there's a correlation there between that and sleep and the immune system and recovery so you know that goes to the topic of hormesis and hormesis is basically exposing yourself to certain amounts of low load stress within a controlled a controlled environment not enough to produce toxicity, but enough to get an added benefit to that. So things like intermittent fasting is a type of hormetic stress where, where if you fast for too long, you'll die. But if you fast a little bit, you get a benefit from it. The same thing with temperature. If you go into an ice bath for a few minutes, you get the benefit of the ice bath in terms of recovery. But if you're in there for hours, you're going to become hypothermic and you're going to die. So I think that's an interesting um, correlation there between hormetic stress and, you know, uh, cold exposure and sleep that I didn't, I didn't draw that link before until you mentioned that. Yeah, it's very, it's very important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, so let, let's, let's continue here. Let's talk a little bit about um, a melatonin. You mentioned melatonin earlier. You mentioned the pineal gland. 
Can you explain for the audience what the pineal gland is, where is it located, and, and a little bit about it, the function of it? Yeah, so the pineal gland is located in the brain. I believe it's the hypothalamus, and it is an, as a gland that basically the main function is, is, is to secrete melatonin. And melatonin is a hormone that everybody makes, including animals, that basically is activated in response to light. So whenever there's light, um, melatonin is, is suppressed, okay? And then when light goes away, meaning when there's when it's dark, melatonin goes up. Yeah. And the reason why is because um, darkness is a trigger for us to go to sleep. And because we evolved with the, with the sun and our sleep-wake cycles evolved with the sun. So when, when the sun was out, um, the human body you know, evolved to suppress the melatonin. And then when the sun went down, melatonin went back up. So that's pretty much all the pineal gland does. I mean, it has a lot of other functions, but that's the primary one. I see. I see. So, what about what about um, like supplements with with melatonin? There's so many people that that take these supplements at night. Have you found it, you know, beneficial in your clinical practice to to take melatonin? Definitely not. So, mm. mel- melatonin is one of the most overprescribed medications in the market, and the the problem is that melatonin the ones the doses that we're that we're seeing in the pharmacies they're actually three to five to ten x the 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 level that's actually physiological so we're basically taking way too much melatonin and um you know from my experience melatonin has not been shown to improve sleep and and actually studies back this up as well and uh we're actually starting to learn that melatonin is actually also important for growth and especially in children. And recently we've been giving children more and more melatonin and and, and that can actually be causing growth retardation mm-hmm. and it could be causing issues with growth and, and uh, development. So we definitely do not want to be giving melatonin. Um, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just not good. Um, I think there's much better ways to address this, uh, which I can get into in the second, but melatonin is from my experience not a good thing yeah so yeah let's get into it let's talk about how to actually optimize sleep right so we, we discuss what sleep is we discuss the stages of sleep non-rem sleep are the first three the last is rem sleep we describe a little bit about the pineal gland melatonin so let's talk a little bit about now how do we optimize sleep to improve our health what are some ways we can optimize sleep joe Tell yeah, us. so like I just mentioned, it turns out that temperature as well as light is one of the most important regulators of sleep. And our core body temperature has to drop in order to fall asleep. So I would say, and this is based on studies, the ideal temperature that your body should be at, it should be 65 to 67 degrees Fahrenheit. That tends, That is the temperature range that increases sleep latency the most. And sleep latency is basically the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep. So we really want to be between that 65 to 67 degree Fahrenheit. Okay. Um, however, the temperature also has to rise in the morning in order to wake up. Right. So that's also important to keep in mind. If, if you're too if you're too warm in the morning, that can also wake you up prematurely. Uh, so just something to keep in mind. And mm-hmm. what are some ways to optimize this? So it would include taking a warm shower or bath before bedtime. That what that does is it basically removes or allows you to cool down 
Uh, ensure the room is 65 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, there's also now commercially available blankets with temperature regulation. So Wait, the hot actually, shower is going to cool you down? What do you mean yeah, by that? The hot, the hot showers, it's counterintuitive, but the hot showers and hot baths, they actually cool you down. Because when you're exposed to hot water, your vessels, they vasodilate. And then when you vasodilate, you actually release heat. It's actually, it's almost the same as when we exercise and sweat. So the, the, the reason we sweat is actually to get rid of the heat and then we cool down. So it's the same with, with when, when we're taking a hot shower. We're actually cooling down afterwards. So the core body temperature decreases. Yeah. And that's probably why people yawn when they're exercising. Yeah. That's, that's probably what it is because, I mean, that's also re- all the reasons. It could also be that you're more relaxed when you're exercising. I mean, if, not, if you're not doing something crazy. Um, but yeah, people, they, they tend to, their body temperatures go up. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Some yes. other things. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. So yeah. What other things, what are some other things we can do? Yeah. So another thing is make sure that to not exercise too close to bedtime. And again, this is because if you exercise too close to bedtime, your body temperature is going to be too high and this is going to, it's going to make it harder for you to fall asleep. So study after study has shown that the ideal time to exercise is either in the morning or early afternoon. So maybe 1, 2, maximum 3 p.m. Anything after that is not good because your, your, your body temperature is way too high. It's going to be hard to fall asleep. So that's another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure to limit devices prior to sleep. This is a big one. Um, devices such as tablets, phones, they, they actually cause arousal, brain arousal and activation we used to think that it was more the blue light which it is but it it turns out that it actually has more to do with uh, the activation so these tablets and iphones they're they're actually designed to draw our attention and to arouse our brains and make us think and problem solve so it's actually that is what's actually causing us to not fall asleep is is our brains are are aroused so that's something important so please avoid any devices about an hour or so before sleep very important. And let me just explain um, something there really quick for the for the listener. So we have a light spectrum, okay? Within that light spectrum, there are different colors and wavelengths, right? So each so the sun produces a different kind of light spectrum, mobile devices, computers, TVs, and fluorescent LED lights. So it's all gonna go into our eyes and our retina kind of a little bit differently. So there's actually studies that show continued exposure to blue light over time could lead to damaged retinal cells. And again, the retina is, is, uh, is a structure on the back of the eye that's pretty much like almost near your brain. So it's that uh, clear connection between your brain and your eye and the external environment. And this could lead to problems like vision problems, like age-related macular degeneration. And uh, so, yeah, blue light at night. Uh, so while light of any kind can suppress the secretion of melatonin, blue light in particular at night does so much more powerfully and this research behind this harvard researchers showed that you know they compared the effects of six and a half hours of exposure to blue light to exposure to green light of comparable brightness and the blue light suppressed melatonin like twice as long as the green light so we all have an iphone many people have iphones now or androids and there's a setting where you can actually shut off the blue light so I would just recommend people shut that blue light off and don't use any cell phones. Like 
an hour before sleep, right, Joe? Like that's going to throw off your 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 rhythm, your circadian rhythms, and yeah, that's your sleep. I, I would recommend you know at least an hour before going to bed. I would avoid any any tablets. Uh, a lot of devices they now have night night shift mode, which you know takes a little bit of the blue light, but it's not it's not a hundred percent. And yeah, so yeah I, w- I would say some other things are limit caffeine to no later than three p.m. Um, for some people, it, it may Oof. be as early as twelve p.m. because it turns out that the half life of caffeine is five to six hours. So let's say that you have a cup of coffee at three p.m. That means that at 9 p.m., half of it is still in your system. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that might be that might be enough to keep you up. I mean, w- there are people who are not affected by this. We know that. And that has to do with the metabolism of, of caffeine and the receptors in the liver. But if you're somebody who's sensitive to caffeine, I mean, I would recommend not drinking coffee after 12 p.m. Because that can definitely mess up your sleep. Right. And... Um, you know some other things here so i would i'm gonna make a big point out of this one so most medications that are designed to improve sleep they actually disrupt the sleep architecture and they lead to tolerance and dependence and a lot of these medications are also associated with increased total mortality and in fact in 2016 the american college of physicians made a formal recommendation to no longer recommend medications as first line for insomnia and the right. first line for insomnia is actually something called cognitive behavior therapy I or CBTI. Um, and it's, a, it's actually a form of therapy that um, is really helpful for people who have insomnia. Yes. So it's actually no longer recommended like Ambien, all those. It's not recommended first line. And um, as an aside, it's actually we've, we've been seeing more and more. The evidence is growing that these medications are associated with dementia. They, they increase your risk for developing dementia. Um, a lot of these sleep aids because they, they disrupt the sleep architecture. And like we mentioned earlier, you know, whenever you have sleep issues, your risk for, for dementia increases. So mm-hmm. therefore, it's no longer rec- recommended. Um, I, I would say the only medication that does not disrupt the sleep architecture is something called trazodone, which is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, but, you know... I would, of course, consult with your physician before trying any of these things. It's a prescribed medication, um, but that's just my opinion. Um, the other issue of medications is that if you stop them, it can lead to rebound insomnia, which means that your insomnia is worse than it was before. Uh, and interestingly, CBTI, even if stopped for months or years, continues to exhibit benefits down the line. So, wow. you know, it's very interesting. So, yeah, let- just for those of you that, that, that don't know exactly what insomnia is. Um, so people with insomnia have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or both. And when symptoms last a month or longer, it's actually called chronic insomnia. And as Joe mentioned, you know, melatonin is, is not a great treatment for it. So according to practice guidelines from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine in 2017 and the American College of Physicians in 2016, there's not enough strong evidence on the effectiveness or safety of melatonin supplementation for chronic insomnia to recommend its use. So like you said, the American College of Physicians strongly recommends the use of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI, as the initial treatment for insomnia. So I want to talk about 
coffee, Joe, because we got to dive into this a little bit more. So many people drink coffee. So many people drink one cup of coffee a day. A lot of people drink two cups of coffee a day. And there's people who drink three, four, five cups of coffee a day. So let's talk about that. Um, Adenosine. Adenosine is a neurotransmitter and the byproduct of cellular metabolism. Adenosine, as I mentioned earlier, a neurotransmitter is essentially a chemical that allows neurons or brain cells to communicate with each other. So examples of this are like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. Another example would be adenosine. So adenosine is high at the end of the day. And that's actually what makes us sleepy. Because a high adenosine level in the body increases a person's sleep drive or sleep pressure. And what happens with with drinking coffee, caffeine acts by blocking adenosine. And since that blocks adenosine, it keeps us awake and makes us feel less sleepy. So this is kind of dangerous because you're pretty much just like, you're putting a Band-Aid over over like a wound. Like it's not, you, you feel less sleepy and you feel like you need less rest. But you act, your brain is suffering, right, Joe? Like, you, you're not getting the sleep you need. You're basically tricking your brain to shut off those receptors to keep you awake. And that yeah, can be pretty harmful. Much. Yeah, yeah. That's, so, the, yeah, the mechanism of action of caffeine is that, like you said, it blocks adenosine, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain that um, is involved in you know, wakefulness and sleep and sleep sleepiness. And... Um, you know, there are there are people who, yeah, they drink three, four, five cups a day, and what you're doing is you're you're just delaying your your the sleep onset more and more and more. And you know, it's not so much of a problem if you do it earlier in the day. The problem is that if you're doing that into the evening and nighttime, I mean, you're really gonna disrupt your sleep. So it's not it's not good to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a drug. It's a legal drug, and you know, there are some benefits of coffee consumption, but Guys, when you drink coffee, if you're drinking it with whipped cream, caramel, frappuccino, espresso, latte, pumpkin spice, you know, pumping it with sugar and corn syrup, that's not coffee. That's 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 diabetes in a cup. Mm-hmm. All right? That's not coffee. Coffee is black coffee. Fresh black grounded coffee. That's coffee. And it can have some benefits if taken within, you know, a... a, a, a uh, a portion that's reasonable, you know, like a cup, maybe two cups a day. But if you're drinking copious amounts of sugar in a cup, that's just going to cause so many health problems. So, you know, coffee is not, there's different types of coffee. You know, I recommend just drinking a cup or two of black coffee, maybe a little bit of sugar. I don't even put sugar in my coffee anymore. I love the taste of coffee, just black, simple, plain. Um, how do you have your coffee, Joe? No, I, I would not put sugar in the coffee. That that under under no circumstances. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, it's actually even worse uh, when you put the sugar yourself because um, you're now it's even easier to absorb in the in the body. So yeah, I have coffee, uh, maybe a little bit of milk, and that's it. No sugar. I haven't had sugar in coffee in years. Yeah, you really don't need it. You know, you don't need you don't need to add anything to it. If you actually like coffee, just drink it plain. Yeah. Pretty much. But anyway, yeah. So those are some things we can do, right? So let, let's summarize some of the things that we can do to optimize sleep. 
you know, so you said cooler temperatures at night, maybe take a hot shower at night. Um, limit coffee intake to, you know, not too late at night. Maybe stop around 12, 3 o'clock if you're very sensitive to coffee. What are some other things you mentioned there, Joe? Yeah, I actually just remember something else. Um, this is this one is actually very important. When you when you wake up first thing in the morning, uh, I recommend opening up all the curtains and getting light exposure immediately. Because what this does is that this essentially resets your circadian rhythm. It, it's telling your body, okay, it's daytime. Now I want melatonin to go down. So one of the best things you can do is immediately upon waking up, open the shades. If you can, after going to the bathroom, go for a nice brisk walk because that is going to reset your circadian rhythm. And also do not wear sunglasses in the morning. Um, if you wear sunglasses in the morning, you're basically blocking that light and that's not going to allow your, your circadian rhythm to reset. So that's something mm -hmm. very important to know. No sunglasses in the morning. Um, some other things are to exercise in the morning. Um, you can also avoid caffeine after 12, p 12 p.m. Make sure the room is cool. You can try taking a warm shower or a bath before bedtime. Avoid blue light before bedtime. Avoid anything stimulating also before bedtime. Don't be watching horror horror movies like <laughs> Fre Freddy versus Jason. None of that because that's gonna that's gonna stimulate your brain. Um, so please, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I recommend just read a book. Read a very boring book because that's gonna make you fall asleep faster. Um, yeah, I mean, those are those are the the, the tip the, the tips I would recommend. Uh, I would say something to, to keep note of. If those measures do not work, I think it's important to take several medical conditions into into consideration that can cause insomnia. And one of the most common is something called obstructive sleep apnea which we may get into a little bit, but that's actually a major, major cause of insomnia. And it's often undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And some of the risk factors are being male, obese, having a narrow upper airway. And it typically presents with excessive snoring, uh, waking up multiple times at night. And the only way to diagnose this is with a sleep study, which is typically done by a sleep specialist. Um, there are other conditions that can cause insomnia include chronic pain, anemia, iron deficiency, neurologic disorders like restless leg syndrome, neuropathies, um, genital urinary diseases like BPH. But again, guys, always consult with your physician if you are unsure. So that's, that's pretty much my tips right there. Awesome, awesome. Very good. So let's dive uh, into quality of sleep right so we, we spoke about how we can optimize sleep right uh from a physical therapist perspective how do you sleep how should you sleep what positions are best for sleep a lot of people complain of low back pain when they sleep a lot of people toss and turn in the middle of the night a lot of people wake up in weird positions contorted positions and they don't know how they got there so my recommendations for sleeping and posture is if you have back pain, you know, or history of back pain, sleeping on your stomach is not recommended. The reason for this is because within our spine, we have different joints. We have joints in between our vertebra, and then we have joints on the sides called the facet joints. And these joints become compressed when we 
go into extension of our spine. What extension means is like arching of the lower back. So essentially the opposite of bending down. Imagine you're bending down to tie your shoe. Extension is the opposite motion going backwards all the way. So if you're sleeping on your stomach for six, seven, eight hours or even more, that's a lot of compression forces to your facet joints. That's going to close those joints, going to make them tight. If you sleep on your stomach, you're going to wake up very stiff. You're going to wake up with pain, achiness. You know, it could even shallow down your legs and your, into your hips. So I do not recommend sleeping on your stomach for back pain and also for neck pain. Pretty much I wouldn't sleep on my stomach at all, you know, because your neck is going to be extended as well. You're going to be compressing those joints. It's a common cause for herniated discs in the neck, um, especially when your neck is extended and rotated to one side, which most likely it will be because of, you know, no one's going to sleep looking down at their pillow, right? You're going to either move your head to the right or you're going to rotate your head to the, to the left. And you're combining now, um, you're combining extension with rotation, which is going to further close those facet joints I mentioned. Uh, and that can pinch on your nerves and cause herniated discs. So I do not recommend sleeping on your stomach. Now, for the people who who do sleep on their stomach and they've tried many different, you know, body pillows or different techniques or whatever, and they find themselves still tossing and turning and ending up on their stomachs, I recommend sleeping on your side to start the night with a semi-firm contoured foam pillow. Uh, also, mattress is really important too. I don't recommend anything too soft. None of this, you know, soft mattress, foamy stuff. You're just gonna sink in, and and it's just not it's not good. I recommend a semi-firm mattress and a contoured foam pillow that takes the shape of your neck, due to the fact that everybody has a different you know anatomy, different neck. So I recommend sleeping on your side, and the reason for this is because your joints are gonna be more in alignment proper alignment if you start the night sleeping on your side and i recommend putting a pillow in between your knees and your ankles and for those who say like yeah i've tried that but i end up like you know still tossing and turning sometimes it just may take a little while for your body to readjust to sleeping positions so i would say just keep trying it keep sleeping on your side with the pillow in between your knees and ankle you're less likely to toss and turn throughout the night if you start the night in proper alignment. The reason why many people toss and turn is because your nervous system is subconsciously looking for neutral. You're, you're looking for comfort. So if you start the night in proper alignment, your body is less likely to subcon subconsciously look for proper alignment. So those are my recommendations for, for sleeping postures and positions. Again, guys, don't use anything too soft where your, your neck is going to sink into the pillow. Also, I would swap out your pillows, you know, every now and then. Like, take a look at it, feel it, make sure it, it's not worn out. Make sure your, your mattress isn't worn out. And, you know, definitely uh, rotate your mattress every now and then in terms of, you know, getting a new one. Just like shoes, things get worn out. You have to buy a new one. Like I said early in the podcast, we spend one third of our lives sleeping. So invest the money, invest the money in buying a, a good mattress, a good pillow, you know, because you're spending a lot of time in that position and sleeping. So, yeah, those are my recommendations for that. Um, so, yeah, 
Uh, anything else you want to talk about, Joe? Or I think we covered everything. I think we covered most of everything. I think uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the mis- uh, common questions people may have about sleep? Yeah. So my question for you, Sam, is what is the best sleep position for low back pain? Well, yeah, just just like I said, it's going to be sleeping on your side. Um, like I said, sleeping on your side is going to be the best for low back pain, um, sacroiliac pain, you know, hip pain. However, if you do have um, if you do have some hip pain, which can mimic low back pain, uh, like things like bursitis, I wouldn't recommend sleeping on your side because it's going to put pressure on that bursa on the hip, which is a fluid filled sac on the side of the hip. So let's say you have left hip bursitis. I would sleep on your right side, like definitely avoid putting pressure on the left side. But just in general, for low back pain, I would I would say sleep on your side. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So my question think, for you, yeah, yeah right. my, my question for you would be, um, you know, going back to coffee, right? Like, I, we gotta we gotta hit this 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 uh, this point home. What would you say to somebody who who says that they need coffee to function optimally and 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 they actually need coffee to sleep better? You know, like there's some people who say like. I, I need coffee to sleep better and because and if I don't drink coffee, I'll get withdrawals and headaches and then I can't sleep because I have a headache. So it's like almost like a two-edged sword here. Like so what would you say to somebody who who says they actually need coffee um at night to like sleep? Well, I, I would say that, that that just can't be true because I mean it probably is true. What I'm what I'm trying to explain is that um, they probably developed a situation where they they depend so much on caffeine mm-hmm. that their their receptors are saturated and their body needs more and more caffeine to have the same effect. And I think in that what what those people are noticing is that when they're not having coffee, they probably crash. And I think that I think that's probably what it is. I think it's people have so much coffee and caffeine and into the night that when they stop, they crash because their body you know essentially just needs more of it and then they just mm-hmm. fall asleep and then they think it's because of the coffee it's actually not it's it's the opposite it's that they're having too much coffee and then you, you know your, your body's having an adverse effect you know i would say if you're if you're if you're needing coffee to, to function i would say we, we have to look into some something because that means that you're not doing something right in terms of your sleep you know are you getting enough hours is it an hour situation is it that you're not getting quality sleep are you waking up at night you know so we i think we had to d- take a deeper look into why are you needing so much coffee it's not normal you know you should not need more than a cup or two maximum a day and i, I you know caffeine i think what it's just what it's supposed to do is supposed to increase your alertness a little bit make you a little bit more focused but it shouldn't you shouldn't have to take a coffee to just to function mm-hmm. i mean that, that that means that you're you're definitely not sleeping enough and you know, I, w- I would definitely look into that because that's a that's a big problem. Okay. Any other questions for me? No, I think uh, we spoke about you know position for for pain. Uh, I I have encountered that some patients they they've described knee pain um, in the morning when they're waking up mm-hmm. or shoulder pain. So what what do you what recommendations do you have on that? Yeah, yeah. So when it comes to the shoulder. It's same thing as I said with the with the hip. If you have any kind of like frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis, if you have any like um, rotator cuff tear, 
just avoid sleeping on that side until it heals. You know, go see a, a good physical therapist to, to treat that, get the inflammation down. And over time, you can start to put a little bit of pressure on it. There's another position called like a quarter turn where you're kind of like at a, a 45 degree angle from your side to your stomach. So you're not completely on your stomach. You're not completely on your side. It's, it's like a quarter turn. So imagine yourself laying face up in a, in, in a supine. It's called supine position. You're laying face up and you put a bunch of pillows on, let's say, your right side, right? Like your right uh, mid back, right hip. That's going to kind of turn you to one side a little bit. So that's not, it's actually a pretty good position to sleep in because you'll get that comfort and you'll get that like similarity from what you're used to, which is like if you are a stomach sleeper, you'll get a little bit of that, but you also get a little bit of the benefit of not being completely on your stomach. So a quarter turn sleeping position would be good for that. Um, when it comes to the knee, if you're having pain in the, in the morning when you're waking up uh, and it goes away after like 30 minutes or so, that's most likely, you know, osteoarthritis, um, especially if it's like an achy pain. So what I recommend for that is if you're a sleeper on your back, I would put pillows underneath your knees so that the contact of so that the contact from your knees to the bed. So it's not like contacting the bed. So it's more so like a little bit in the bent position and that can relieve some of your symptoms in the morning. So, yeah, yeah. That, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I did want to talk. I just, I think we can close it with this one, but there's something called chronotypes. So people, different people have different chronotypes. What that means is that some people's circadian rhythms are, are, are set at different times. So there, there are people who they go to bed extremely late and I'm talking like four or five in the morning and then they, they sleep until noon. And that's actually a, a very specific chronotype. And I think, in in terms of of diagnosing insomnia we we actually misdiagnose those patients with insomnia and they actually don't have insomnia it's actually that they have a very specific chronotype that uh-huh. requires that they go to sleep very 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 late and wake up very late and unfortunately because of our society you know typically work starts early school starts early we have to wake up early so you know those people they're misclassified as being having insomnia but it's actually not insomnia it's, it's a chronotype and people have different chronotypes, you know. Some people, they're early risers. Like, I'm actually one of them. I wake up very early. I'm typically up by 6, 6.30. Um, but I also go to bed pretty early. Um, and that's just my natural sleep cycle. And um, some people, you know, they're in the middle. Some people, they, they, they wake up very late in the morning. So I, I think that's something to keep in mind because we, some, we, we often misdiagnose those patients with having insomnia, but it's actually their chronotype. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I've definitely seen that before. Some of my patients, very unusual sleep patterns. But yeah, I hope uh, I hope you guys found this uh, podcast informative on sleep, how to optimize your sleep to improve your health. And uh, I hope everyone gets a good night's sleep tonight. So thank you all for listening to the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast. If you like our content, please subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts. Feel free to email us with any comments, questions, or a topic you would like for us to discuss. Or if you want to become a guest speaker on our podcast, email us at thesotohwp at gmail.com. Also follow us on YouTube and Instagram at Soto Health and Wellness. Be well.